The fact of the matter for us this morning to recognize is simply this, that you and I live and work in a Genesis 3, 17 and 18 world. Cursed is the ground because of you, the Lord said to Adam. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Friends, it hasn't always been this way. It won't really stay this way forever, praise God. But it is that way now. Sin has sucked the fun right out of a lot of our work. And it is awfully frustrating. It doesn't matter if our workplace happens to be our home, in a classroom, on a factory floor, or in an office cubicle. Living in a Genesis 3 world means that our work can often, maybe almost always be a source of great frustration and constant futility. And all God's people said, amen. At the end of the story, our work lives frequently feel like we've been snake bitten. And that's because we have been. There's a vivid scene in C.S. Lewis's classic novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It illustrates this reality perfectly. Lewis depicts that mythical Narnia, a breathtaking realm which at one time displayed the vibrant and flourishing warmth of summer and how it is now forced to face the chilling bite of winter. Little Lucy, one of Lewis's main characters and at times the wisest of his characters, she questions Mr. Tumnus, a a half-man, half-Bambi-like creature about the white witch whose curse has dreadfully altered the land of Narnia. Mr. Tumnus responds, Why? It's she that has got Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. Yes, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. To which an incredulous Lucy then blurts out, That's awful. And indeed it is. Imagine it being always winter and never Christmas. Lewis's point is simply this, that we are broken people living in a broken world. Something has gone terribly wrong. Our existence, including, and maybe at times, especially our work, is not what it ought to be. And we are painfully aware of it. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by the superlatively wise son of David, that, of course, is King Solomon. And it uniquely portrays the emptiness and the futility and even the great frustration of life lived under the sun. That little phrase, under the sun, perhaps the most important in the entire book of Ecclesiastes, occurs more than 31 times in 12 chapters. Life under the sun. It simply indicates that sort of life that is lived purely by earthly morals, earthly values, and a life lived without regard or recourse to spiritual or heavenly meaning. Simply put, it's a life lived without God as its focus and at its center. Life under the sun. 
Solomon, you'll observe, wastes no time if you will join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He wastes no time getting down to the real sobering theme of his book. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil? The Hebrew there is the word amal. It occurs more than 20 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the work, all the sweat, all the toil with which he toils under the sun? I told you before, the Bible is a book about work. God's work, our work, Christ's work, our future work of giving him worship. The key word vanity, and that's the word that many of us think of when we hear about the book of Ecclesiastes, is the Hebrew word hevel or hevel. It means vapor or breath. It occurs 31 times as well in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it refers to the futility, complete futility, the the nothingness, the emptiness of life without God at its core. Everything, friend, that we experience in this sin-ravaged world, this Genesis 3 world, if God is left out or if God is forgotten, is utterly and eventually empty. If you want to find significance and purpose and meaning, you must know Christ. You must know Christ. Even our labor on earth is futile without the Lord. And so in other words, Solomon simply asks here at the beginning of his book, what's the point of all of our striving to all of our work and our sweat and our effort? What's the point? Who are we really doing all of this for when there are no guarantees that the guy who follows us is going to appreciate it and not mess it all up? What's the point for all our work? Or as the late British scholar Derek Kidner once put it, If there is a lie at the center of existence and nonsense at the end of it, who has the heart to make anything of it? If, as we might say, every card in our hand will eventually be trumped, does it really matter how we play the game? What a sad way to live, to think that it's all rigged and there's no way to win. I hate those sorts of games. Apples to apples is one of them. I hate that game. (laughs) The truest of all books, Ecclesiastes brings us nose to nose with the insanity of our sin. It brings us nose to nose with the insatiability of the human heart. It brings us nose to nose with the insecurity of our daily work. Sin is insane. Notice that Ecclesiastes begins with a survey of three key areas of life and their eventual futility apart from faith in God. I steal this right from Pastor Tim Keller, mind you. He focuses these three areas are knowledge, pleasure, and work, but he was really just peeking over Solomon's shoulder. He says, quote, the first is a quest to make sense of life through learning and wisdom. We see that in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and also chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, a quest for learning and wisdom. The second is an effort to make life fulfilling through the pursuit of pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11 chronicle that. 
The third project that the preacher undertakes to chase away the sense of pointlessness is the pursuit of achievement through hard work. We see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 to 26, our text this morning. Keller continues, having tried to live for learning and for pleasure, he now tries to live for the accomplishment of concrete goals and the accrual of wealth and influence. But in the end, he concludes that work cannot all by itself deliver a meaningful life. So, the way Bill began as he read, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Aren't you glad you got out of bed this morning and came to church? Whether suddenly or slowly, all the results of our toil will eventually be wiped away under the sun. So why even try it all? That's essentially Solomon's point. Ecclesiastes 2, specifically verses 18 to 23, paints a vivid if not, frankly, very depressing description of the effects of the curse. Ecclesiastes points to Genesis chapter 3. It shows us life in a Genesis 3 sort of world. Work under the sun, we are reminded here, is tragically impermanent. It is often underappreciated, and it is sadly unsatisfying. Even if our work is not entirely fruitless in a particular day or week, ultimately, it is inevitably pointless from Solomon's seemingly cynical perspective if life under the sun is really all there is. But, friend, but, church, and here is the hard-to-see point of the preacher, this, that is, what we see and experience here and now under the sun is not all that there is. Amen? Amen? This is not all that there is. You see, interspersed and intermingled with Solomon's anxious observations regarding the futility and frustrations we face in daily life are little glimpses of divine grace. Little glimpses of God's gracious gifts to mankind under the sun. Even, and maybe for our purposes this morning, primarily the gift of work. Ecclesiastes 2, 24-26 notably is the first of several carpe diem passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. Where Solomon encourages his readers to enjoy life. Go ahead, enjoy life. That is to seize the day because it's a gift from God's own heavenly and merciful hand. Enjoy life. Yes, life is full of great frustration. I have been frustrated already today. And yes, work often feels quite unfair. Who doesn't feel that from time to time? But Solomon sprinkles in the seasoning of divine grace amid sobering assessment of man's embittered experience. By giving us this incredible pearl of wisdom. Look what he says in verse 24 of chapter 2. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him God has given his wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting 
only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Life is hard, folks. I'm not going to tell you anything that's not true here. Life is hard. But God is good all the time. Work is both curse and gift. It is both curse and gift. Life greets us with both frustration and exhilaration. Pastor Tom Nelson reminds us of this, saying, quote, Our work gives us evidence of our glorious creation as well as our great estrangement from God and our need for a Savior who will redeem us from sin's devastating curse. Work is both bite and blessing. Understand that work is not the result of the fall, but it has been sadly ruined by the fall. Adam and Eve worked before they were ruined. Work is not a consequence of the fall. It's just been contaminated by it. God's curse as a consequence of the fall captures the reality of why we experience alienation and insecurity and frequent anxiety here in our human experience of work. And yet God has given us work to enjoy. It's really not glorifying to God when we grumble our way to work, when we gripe our way through our day. It's really not all that honoring to God. It's understandable, but it's not all that honoring to God. Ecclesiastes 3.22 says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Stay in your lane, Solomon says. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Listen, work because of human sin is now generally hard and typically frustrating, but it doesn't have to be completely empty. That is Solomon's gracious point. The present painfulness of our daily work reminds us of both the thorns of divine judgment at the beginning of creation, as well as the thorns of divine mercy at the point of redemption of creation. Our work has been ruined and corrupted on account of sin, stripped of our daily satisfaction ever since the garden. We were pricked by thorns. But at the same time, our work has been redeemed. Our work has been consecrated by a crucified and risen Savior whose head itself bore the thorns while bearing our cross. Jesus' work restores and renews our work. We should think of thorns, both at creation and at redemption, while we work. There are three particularly thorny observations and implications of living that I want to share with you this morning from chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. The first is simply this, that man's fall into sin means that we are now faced to leave the fruits of our labor to the fools who are going to follow us. We see that in verses 18 and 19. This is the thorn of impermanence, the thorn of impermanence. Solomon recounts, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. 
seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. By the way, I think you can actually outline this particular passage by tracing the occurrence of that phrase, this is vanity, or this also is vanity. That's how I broke out this sermon this particular week. I think of Proverbs 10 verse 1, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. I'm so glad God made me dad. <laughs> Proverbs 15:20, a wise son makes glad his father, but a foolish man despises his mother. I want to talk to Solomon to really understand why he wrote some of these things the way that he did. But again, the point is simply this. Sin means we have to leave the fruit to a fool, or at least we often do. Someone said, or this is maybe a, a, a classic um, aphorism, a statement, a fool and his money are soon departed. Maybe you've heard that before. A fool and his money are soon departed. Well, dubbed the poor little rich girl, Barbara Hutton was the heiress of the famous Woolworth fortune. On her 21st birthday, she inherited more than $50 million. That was in, in the 1930s. Adjusted for inflation, she would have in, uh, inherited, or she did inherit, uh, money valuing more than $900 million. Despite the fact that she grew up wealthy, Barbara Hutton was extremely insecure. In fact, her mother died of suicide in 1933. Her father was largely absent throughout her life. Hutton sought to soothe her depression with shopping and buying expensive gifts for herself and for her friends. She married seven times throughout her lifetime and had many other illicit affairs beyond that. Hutton's foolish habits left her with next to nothing at the time of her death in 1979 at the age of 66. A fool followed a father and the money was squandered. Let me give you just one other example under this heading, and there could be many, many others besides Clinton, Clint Marchison Jr. He stepped into $200 million after the death of his father, an oil tycoon in the late 1960s. Murchison Jr. was raised with a silver spoon and learned to enjoy expensive tastes. Unlike his father, who invested his hard-earned money wisely, the younger Murchison decided to have a lot of fun with his inheritance. His first large investment was the founding of the Dallas Cowboys football team in 1960, his first grave mistake. He not only put millions, sorry Troy, he not only put millions into the football team, but also invested in many other risky ventures, including restaurants and other oil endeavors and even radio stations, from what I'm told. Many of his, of his investments failed, and with the collapse of the oil and real estate holdings in the 1980s, Murchison Jr. was financially ruined. By the age of 85, he had no choice but to file for bankruptcy and died only two years later after selling off all of his assets. Can you imagine? Solomon's sage counsel sobers us up to the reality of the impermanence of our work and our wealth. The fact of the matter is this. A fool 
very likely may follow and squander everything you've worked hard to, to, to have. So if your focus in work or in accumulating wealth is on leaving a legacy and building a monument to what you've accomplished, I'm sorry to say it, but you're likely to be disappointed. Imbeciles abound. We are imbeciles. We are. It's not just somebody else. We are often so foolish in the insanity of our sin. Those of you who've lived in Berks County know this all too well. Just look around at all the changes that you see and that I know you love so much. Streets change, businesses change, towns change, even schedules change at church, folks. Nothing endures forever under the sun. And why would, it, why would we expect it to when sin and the thorn of sin has pricked us so deeply and profoundly. Just a few verses earlier from our passage, Solomon recounted his own entrepreneurial exploits and ended up feeling exasperated. Look at Ecclesiastes 2 verse 9. The Bible says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after a wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Who was the last leader of the, United, of the unified kingdom of Israel? Solomon was. Solomon was. Observation number one this morning is simply this. Humanities fall into sin means that much of our stuff is, in going, is going to be inherited and wasted by the fools who follow us. This is a lesson of the impermanence of life under the sun. Be careful where you invest your work. Number two, man's fall into sin also means, and this is awfully cheery as well, that we have to face the fact that life is not always fair, that sometimes our material goods will get to be enjoyed by those who did not work for them. They did not exert the same effort that we did to accrue them. I call this the thorn of injustice. The thorn of injustice. Look, someday should the Lord Jesus tarry, you and I will be gone. And what a blessed day that's going to be. And others will get to enjoy this brand new building that you and I have worked hard to see come to fruition. But guess what? You and I have been enjoying the building that somebody else built before we got here in the first place. That's just how life works, friends. Life's unfair. And if you are constantly worried about somebody playing with your toy, you're always going to be disappointed. If you're constantly worried about getting yours out of something, you're constantly, constantly going to be frustrated. Life is not fair under the sun. And be glad that it's not. Be glad that it's not. Along with the foolishness, Solomon laments the fact that life's just not fair. Notice verses 20 and 21. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labor under the sun. 
Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Notice how Solomon outlines the text for us with that phrase. Isn't a part of our daily frustration and dissatisfaction with work the disparity and the lack of appreciation that we so often feel associated with it? When will they notice me? When will I get my opportunity? Why is it just not fair? Sin has made our work not only feel impermanent, but also, strangely, it has alienated us from one another. It isolates us. It makes us stingy and selfish instead of selfless and graceful. That's what sin does. Turning person against person, just like Adam against Eve. This sense of prideful entitlement and futility, I think, is illustrated marvelously by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 20, when he gave the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You know that story. Jesus told the listeners around him a story, a a parable meaning an earthly story with an eternal meaning, about a kingdom and a master of this kingdom, this master of a house, who went out early one morning and hired laborers to work in his vineyard. He agreed upon the terms of the day's contract with a few willing hands who went out to his field. They, were, uh, they agreed to a, a work price of a denarius for the day. One denarius for one day's work. A day's wage for an honest day's work. Then we read what Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 9 and following. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, what we need to understand is it wasn't just those at the top of the day that were hired and sent out. The master of the house goes out later in the day, even towards the end of the day, and hires additional servants to go put into his field. But they all had the same contract price, a denarius for a day's work. Verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And I sort of read in, not a harsh, scathing response But a sweet, simple rebuke. Take what is yours and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. I want you to pause for a moment and just put yourself in the shoes of the hired workman. The one at the beginning of the day and... See what kind of reaction you would have if that was what you were told at the end of the day. Or perhaps put your feet in the shoes of the one who was graced with only a little bit of work, but the full day's wage. The fact is we fear, not just fear, we often resent the unfairness and the inequity of work and reward because sin has made us selfish and naturally cynical and skeptical of divine grace. Here's what I think. Solomon points, puts his finger right on our problem. 
We are fine when we are the recipients of grace, but we are stingy when it comes to displaying grace. Nobody would object to being the guy who gets hired at 10 o'clock in the evening to get the full day's denarius. But also, hardly anyone would just abide the fact with joy in your heart singing, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. If you're the person at 7 o'clock in the morning that got hired and you see people, other people uh, getting the same pay for less work later in the day. There's a bent in our hearts and it takes grace to straighten it out. It takes the grace of Jesus. So Genesis 3 reminds us that our work feels fleeting and that it is often unfair and that's just the way it is. We're going to have to learn to live with it for now. Because one day, It won't be like this. Point number three this morning. Men's fall into sin means that we are often tempted to worry and fret pointlessly and needlessly losing sleep at times over what will happen to our stuff when we're gone. Solomon hints at this third and final thorn in verses 22 and 23. Life under the sun has introduced us to the realities of impermanence and to the realities of underappreciation or, or injustice, and now perhaps worst of all at times, the thorn of anxiety, or as I call it, insecurity. The thorn of insecurity. What has a man from all the toil, verse 22 says, and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. That's a good southern word right there. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Feel anxious much? Stressed out and worried about how the bills are going to get paid? Or if the pink slip is coming your way? Have you ever laid awake at night worrying about losing your job or if your job was being done well enough? I have. I struggle with this intensely. Is there any worse feeling than not being able to simply rest securely in the heavenly well done and I love you? Is there any worse feeling? Solomon links the futility that we often experience in our work lives, the sadness of heart, that's the word sorrow, or to anger, that's the word vexation, or even anxiety, that his heart does not rest. How does this passage strike you? I'm convinced that our church probably has more workaholics than idols in it. So I want to give you a few indicators on the dashboard of your heart and life if you might be in danger of being a workaholic. Because I think that's actually what leads sometimes to sleepless nights. We can't rest securely in the fact that God is sovereign and has it all under control. One sign is being preoccupied with work even when you're off the clock. Does your mind constantly race to what's happening back at the office? Another sign is putting in long and even unnecessary hours at the office just to avoid being home with family. That happens sometimes. Men do not succumb to that temptation to think that it's easier to stay away from home. Get home. Get home and love your family as well. Being unable to sleep and relax comfortably at night for fear of what might be happening. Refusing to take time off for vacations and family enjoyment. Thinking that you're some sort of work superhero. It actually might be an indication that you're a workaholic. 
experiencing a constant state of guilt over not performing better or adequately at your work. Could mean that you're a workaholic. Being frequently angered or irritable towards fellow workers or family members for no apparent reason whatsoever. That is frequently a sign that you are a workaholic. Or being unsatisfied and lacking contentment over your income or your vocation is another sign here. I wonder if any of these, or maybe even all of these, or most of these strike any of you in particular. If so, I want to encourage you to talk with me. Talk with one of your elders. Help us shepherd you through this temptation of sin in workaholism. Fear, futility, and frustration with work leads to a feeling of anxiety, feeling underappreciated or not appreciated at all, and that nothing you do actually accounts for anything. Solomon puts it this way, this also is vanity and a great evil under the sun. The world would stop right there and say, suck it up. Get out there and keep going. But we as Christians have a different response. What's the solution to man's problem, Solomon? What, what, what wisdom would the Bible give us in order to address these constant fears and feelings of frustration and futility? Well, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6 has a good response. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. What is he saying there? He's saying the solution is finding your significance and your contentment, not in your work, but in your worship of Jesus Christ. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. Quiet enjoyment. That's my definition for contentment this morning. Quiet enjoyment is actually the realization that work is both bitter and blessed. It is uh, it, is, it is both gift and, um, and hard from the Lord. But it comes from his hand. Notice again verses 24 of chapter 2 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The Bible says, without uh, mincing words, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Amid the stress and the sweat of life's futility and frustration, Solomon slips in again this glimpse of gospel glory and grace, and he gives the secret of eternal joy and satisfaction. It is found in doing the things that God has given us to do while delighting in the person who God is. Doing the things that God has given us to do while delighting in the person who God is. See, work is a gift and a burden from the good hand of Almighty God. However, the only way to enjoy our labor is to love the Lord. It is to love the Lord. Who do you work for? Who do you work for? As I thought about that question, five possible responses came to my mind earlier this week. 
Sometimes we work for ourselves. I'm my own man. I work for myself. Sometimes we work to please our earthly bosses. Sometimes we work to provide well for our families. We work to provide or add to the community's good. Or even perhaps some would say we work to glorify God. But the order, the priority of our worker is often jumbled and garbled. Who do you work for and what order would you put those items in? According to scripture, I think there's really only one right answer. The world and the wisdom of the world would say this. Number one, you work for your own reputation and for your own wealth. Work for yourself. Number two, maybe if you have a wife and kids, work hard for them to leave them with a comfortable life. The wisdom of the world would say, number three, maybe you work as well a little bit, but certainly after yourself and maybe after your family, you work to make your boss happy and maybe you'll get that promotion. Number four, you work in order to be generous to to poor people or, or to the church or somebody like that so you can feel better about yourselves. That's the wisdom of the world. And maybe, just maybe you'll get around to, to thinking about working hard so that if there is a God, he'll let you into heaven one day after you die. That's the, that's the foolishness of sin. That's the wisdom of the world, and it's not the wisdom of God's word. The Bible demonstrates and admonishes us to prioritize why we work and who we work for radically different. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, the the text that we'll begin with next Sunday in our concluding message in this series simply says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Number one, we are to work for the glory of Almighty God and for His praise. All day, every day, that is why we work. Number two, we are to work hard to provide for our family and to be able to be generous with those in need, according to Galatians 6, verse 10. And thirdly, in that order, I believe, we are to work hard to honor our employers as good servants and workers in our fields, and maybe to add something of value as a gift of common grace to our culture. Even in such dark and seemingly pessimistic book as Ecclesiastes is, listen to me as I close. We as gospel people are encouraged to cultivate a hopeful realism with our work and to enjoy it as a gift from God's good hand. Because here's what we haven't figured out yet. Maybe you have already. Here's what I want you to understand. Futility and frustration is actually not the problem. They are signs of a greater problem, a greater problem of the human condition that God wants you to to solve, but you can't solve it on your own. Futility is not your problem. Frustration is not your problem. Sin is your problem. And Christ is the only solution. Robert Short called the book of Ecclesiastes simply a God-shaped vacuum. And he's so right. A God-shaped vacuum. We've turned our work into a place of worry when God intended it to be a space for worship. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. In other words, when you set your affections and attentions so focusedly on the person of Jesus Christ, you will not fret or be frustrated or be worried with the elusive hollow pleasures of this earth. 
Keep your focus on Jesus. Dorothy Sayers says, I close here, the first Adam was cursed with labor and suffering, but the redemption of labor and suffering is the triumph of the second Adam, a carpenter who was nailed to the cross. Jesus came to work, and his work was our salvation. Christ is the key to enjoying your work, and we're going to unpack that more next Sunday. I hope you'll come back. Do you take a Christ above all mentality into the marketplace, into your education center, into your neighborhood? Because that's what we need to do. Solomon indicates in verse 25, for apart from him, apart from the Lord, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I talked about thorns earlier. Remember, more so the thorns of the cross today than you do the thorns of creation. God the Son came down and experienced the emptiness of life on earth. He came and suffered for a lost and helpless race of rebels and workaholics consumed with insecurity and apathy and anxiety. He did that for us. And he rose again from the dead in order to be forever filling the empty spaces of our hearts because he alone is risen to reign in our hearts. He wore a crown of thorns on behalf of Adam's children who caused the thorns to grow in the first place. And that's not vanity. That's victory. That is our faith. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, what a humbling privilege it is to handle your word and to be called of you to feed your flock. But, oh Lord, we pray that you will take this word and you will Allow it to sprout up into a harvest of obedience and righteousness for your glory. Lord, rescue us from straying and and grasping and running after, like striving after a wind, the wealth and work of this world. Help us to rightly order our affections and priorities for you to get the maximum glory, for this church to be built up as you call us to be built up, and for us to share this good news with others in our culture. We ask in Jesus' name.